In 2013, a postman named Jabor got up for work, put on his nice postman's outfit, polished his shoes, got in his van, got his letters ready to take out, and then decided for whatever reason that he could no longer do his job. So he threw them all in the canal. Following day, he got up, looked to the park, got ready for work, decided he couldn't do his job anymore, so burned 400 letters and parcels. This kept on going. And he ran out of places to put them, so in the end, he buried 29,000 letters. He must have had some garden, because he buried them in his garden. This is a true story. This is not made up. What he'd done was, on the outside, he still looked like a postman. He still looked like he was being the pillar of the community, doing an amazing work delivering posts for people. But actually, what had happened on the inside is that things had gone horribly wrong, and he was no longer able to do what he was meant to be doing. See, it's very easy, as disciples of Jesus, to, on the outside, look like everything is okay, to come to church, to look presentable, to say the right things, yet inside, things can actually be very different. What's going on in the heart can be very different to what we show on the outside. And we're on our third in the series on the Sermon of the Mount today, this central piece of the teaching of Jesus on how to apply, if you like, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We don't read the Sermon on the Mount and put it into practice to be saved, but having been saved, having met Jesus, he then takes us back to this and says, this is now how you live as a follower of me. And it's really important that we get it this way around. And if you've already turned to your Bible, um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 32, you'll see it has some not very encouraging title headings. Murder, adultery, divorce, spells the acronym MAD, if that helps you at all this morning. This is not a fluffy passage of scripture. It's not the kind of passage of scripture that makes you feel like you've put on your dressing gown, put your slippers on, and are all nice and cosy. But it's the kind of passage of scripture that actually reaches into our hearts where all of us find ourselves. We can't say this is for other people. This is for all of us this morning. So if you want to turn to your Bible, I'll start reading at verse 17 and I'll read down to verse 32. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remembering that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
Do it while you are still together on your way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are not easy words. We need God's Holy Spirit, don't we, to open them to us. Let's pray again, shall we? Loving God, would you apply your word to our hearts today? Pray that as we look at this passage, it will not be a passage that condemns, but a passage that reminds us of our deepest need of you and your transformation in us. Lord, again, thank you that that is the context with which we come to gather around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, this was... um, something we started off with, a quote we started off in the Sermon on the Mount, we see our need of Christ. And Christ, having greeted us, sends us back and instructs us how to live. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what Jesus does at the start is, if you like, sets his own context for his teaching. And we read the law, the word law, in that passage, and we probably think this is the law of Moses. This is what Jesus is saying. Every last bit of the law of Moses I've come to fulfill. But actually, it's more than that. When he says the law and the prophets, what Jesus is actually saying is the whole backstory of the people of Israel, the whole of the accounts of the Old Testament point to Jesus. They're all about Jesus. Jesus fulfills everything. He fulfills events like the Exodus and the exile. It all points to him. Jesus isn't just talking about rules and regulations, but that he is a fulfillment of all of God's promises. Verse 19, the kingdom of heaven. This is about the rule of God taking place in our hearts. And we can only do that when we follow Jesus. We can't reach our way to God by doing things. You know, it's so important that we read this passage this way. Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus there, he's not talking about heaven as a location, but the rule and the reign of God that comes into this world now when we follow Jesus and then lasts for all eternity as we see the kingdom come in its fullness. And so we get to the first of the three rather alarming sub-points of this passage. Murder. I'm not going to put these on the screen. I didn't think that would look particularly helpful. But what Jesus will do now is to expound the Old Testament. This is teaching. This is preaching. 
And he first of all picks the words from Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Commandment 6 of the Ten Commandments. And if, if you study societies around the world, most cultures, even cultures that have not been touched by the gospel hardly at all, agree that it's wrong to murder somebody in cold blood. That you don't just go around murdering people randomly. And the people of Jesus' day would have known the law. They would have known the words from Exodus. And the religious people of the day felt they had this one covered. Because although they had all kinds of get-out clauses for people being killed if they were being punished or going into war, we haven't got time to go into all that today, they very much felt that this was the tick-box exercise. You know, I haven't murdered somebody. Tick in the box, earn my way to God, transactional approach to spirituality, says if I do this, God will like me, therefore I'm doing well. But actually what Jesus does is he starts to dig under the surface. He starts to dig right down into the human heart. Remember the River Thames and my rather spectacular ornament here at the front of church. At the source of the River Thames, there is no water to be seen. It's dry. But already, deep underground, there is a river forming. A stream is already there. If you were to excavate deep enough, perhaps to bury those 19,000 letters or something, But if you were to dig that far down, you would find there is water flowing. And so what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't just deal with the horrendous applications of murder, if you like when the River Thames is five miles wide coming out to sea, and you can't do anything to stop the flow. Actually, what he does is say, let's go right back to the source. Where actually there's nothing visible, but there's stuff going on underground in the human heart, and things are going wrong. He doesn't take us back to say, well, actually, don't beat one another up. He doesn't take one another back and say, don't fall out massively. But he takes us back to those first grumblings, if you like, of a murderous spring that come out of the human heart. To the place where there's selfishness or anger or revenge. And he goes there first, verse 22. Anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The word raka means something like empty head. It's, it's that kind of, it's calling somebody sort of slightly mindless. It's, it's that kind of insult. And then the next one he says, anyone who says you fool, the word there probably translates best as moron. It's that, it's that sort of word there. And it's, it's basically, if you pass judgment on a person's character, it's a step further down the line. You're actually facing eternal judgment. So I want to ask you a question, and I'm not going to put my hand up for this, just so you don't feel that you need to. Anyone not called anyone a name in the last 12 months? If you do, you're surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees, and I will give you a brownie mark, even if God won't. We all call one another names, don't we? It may be the person who almost reverses into you in a car park. It may be the person who stands in front of you in the queue in Sainsbury's, taking hours and hours. It may be whatever. It may be somebody in your family who's been winding you up. And it's very easy, isn't it, to call people names. But Jesus is very clear. It's actually at that point, way upstream, that this river that ends up in murder has its origins. Now, all sin cuts us off from the presence of a holy God. All sin. You know, once the the spring has started to bubble up, we're, we're in the realm of sin, even there. But not all sin has the same impact on the world in which we live, nor on the same impact in how our own human heart responds. And Jesus acknowledges that. 
If I call somebody an idiot before the, because they pull out of me, in front of me when I'm driving, then that doesn't have very long-lasting consequences. If I pull out a gun and shoot them, obviously the consequences are going to be rather more severe. But you see, the murderous river, if not brought into the light of God's kingdom, will quickly gather pace. Now, it probably will never get to murder. Murder is thankfully very rare in this country. But as humans, it can build up and we can start to want to discredit other people, start to want to belittle other people, even start to see, want to see other people removed. Now, I don't mean necessarily you know, get out the gun and shoot them, but to see them come out of our sphere of influence. You know, if you're in the workplace, to try and get that person moved out of your department or whatever it is. And so Jesus highlights a problem, a problem of anger, a problem of selfishness, a problem of discrediting and belittling other people. But he also gives us a remedy. Verses 23 and verse 26, we get two illustrations. The first one is somebody offering a gift at the altar in the temple. And the person there realizes that actually relationship is wrong. And so before they come and they do their act of worship, there is the encouragement, go and sort the relationship out. Worship isn't just an isolated event that is separated from living. Sort out your living as part of your worship. And the second one is about debt, and it's very much the same kind of application. You see, we are called, as human beings, to be worshippers. That is what God wants us to be. To truly fulfill our calling as a human being is to be in right relationship with God, worshipping him. But the danger is, is that we narrow worship down to, to singing, to coming to church, to perhaps prayer as well, we may include all of that. But actually, the Bible doesn't do that. Worship is about the whole person that we are. It's about how we live. It's about how we react when we feel those springs of anger building up inside of us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In fact, Paul says that worship cannot and should never be separated from how we live. It's not something we can do. And where on our part it is possible, and I totally get that this isn't always the case, not every relationship that we're part of can be reconciled because the other person might not be interested in reconciliation, and that can be very, very painful. But as far as it is good on our part to reach out, to be the peacemaker, to be the reconciler, then the call goes out again to do those things. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the reign of God in our hearts looks like. You know how much easier and how much simpler life is when we have the courage as disciples to deal with the springs in our life rather than to be dealing with a raging river that has gathered pace and momentum several miles downstream. So for us, the question from this first point. Well, it may be that you want to murder somebody today. If that's you, please do go for prayer ministry afterwards. But I imagine for many of us that isn't the direct application. But it will be about anger. It will be about how this starts to spring up in our lives. 
It will be about wanting to belittle people and remove people from our sphere of influence. And Jesus challenges us. That is not what discipleship of Jesus looks like. That is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do we want to be transformed? Do we want to be the reconciler and the peacemaker? Let's move on. Adultery. I tell you, this is the passage that just keeps on giving. It was great having um, Diane Tidball here a couple of weeks back. And for those of you who went to Partington in the evening, you'll have heard this line that she said. And I really like this. Holiness is the greatest fun you can ever have. I have never, ever heard anyone equate holiness with fun before. But the way she said it just brought it really to life for me. To live a holy, godly life is not a life living like some 15th century Puritan with your rule book out, ticking off things that you shouldn't be doing. It's not a life of legalism, but it's a life that is lived as Jesus would want you to live life. And it's when we live like that that actually we live in freedom. Because we're not clearing up mess all the time. We're not feeling guilty all the time. We're living in freedom. We're living with the freedom to become everything that God wants us to be. So Jesus keeps on preaching, and his next text that he takes is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And again, what the commandment does is it issues the law of God. This is what God wants for his people. He wants people to remain faithful in marriage, to not have affairs. Now, sadly, we we know that we live in a broken world. We know that this does happen, and we know that when it happens, it can cause great pain, great pain to particularly um, to the couple involved. If there's a family involved as well, it can cause great pain to children. But we have to read all this again through the lens that God is a God who can bring forgiveness and reconciliation. So let's, as we start out on this passage, not forget that. But again, the religious people thought they had this one covered. They thought, well, if they remained faithful to their wives, and remember, this, this would be men, predominantly who Jesus was addressing here, but we'll come on to that in a minute. If they were to be, remain faithful to their wives, or even to look that they were remaining faithful, the box was ticked. Another brownie point. Another step closer to God. Another works-based type salvation point earned. But just think about the context for a minute here. First century Israel was a very male-dominated society. The men really were the people who were in charge. And so hence the way that Jesus here directs this to men. It doesn't say women when you lust after men. It just says men when you lust after women. We live in a very different culture to this, and we need to be applying this both ways. Women, you are not off the hook in this passage by any means. This is both ways. And what Jesus again does is he digs down with the application. Here, adultery is way down the stream of a river that starts out with lustful thoughts somewhere back up at the spring. That's what happens. It bubbles up, and if we don't control it, if we don't bring it to Jesus, it just keeps on flowing, and eventually we're dealt clearing up a load of mess later downstream. And this also doesn't just apply to married people. Jesus doesn't just say this is just for for married people, this is for everybody. Everybody can have lustful thoughts that can go wrong and cause wrong relationships. You know, when I was a single man, this was just as difficult, if not more difficult, to keep in right relationships before God. Verse 28, 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully had already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jim Speck, um, writing Christianity Today, defines sexual lust as this. The illicit sexual buzz, willfully allowing pleasurable gratification of wrongly directed sexual desire that takes place deep inside. Now, God made sex. It was his idea. He made it before the fall. There's nothing fallen about sex. You read the book of Songs of Songs if you want to see what God thinks about it in a right context, in a right marriage relationship. There is nothing remotely sort of Victorian prudishness about the book of Songs of Songs. Perhaps we'll preach through it one time and Chris can take the whole series. (laughs) And as Christians, you know, it's essential that we establish the inherent goodness of what God has made. That we establish it and say, God has made good things. But sex, like so many things that God has said good, can be misused, abused. And when that happens there are often significant emotional consequences. The Bible will say right the way through, the sexual desire, sex, physical attraction, have one place of fulfillment, and that is in the security and the God-given blessing of a marriage relationship. Because without that context, what sex will do is quickly distort itself into self-gratification, into self-seeking, that can deeply damage us and damage other people. Now, Jesus here isn't calling for us as his disciples to live without temptation. He isn't saying don't live without desire, but rather to live lives of appropriate behavior. You know, we live in a culture that I think is probably more sexualized than at any point in human history. You know, if you've got a smartphone in your pocket, within two or three clicks, you could get into a whole host of sort of images of nudity or sex or whatever, Just by driving our cars around in the world we do today, on billboards, you will see sexualized images. It might not be nudity, but it'll be still very sexualized images. You put your TV on, you can't help but to see things that 100 years ago would have been totally unthinkable. Without wishing to be blunt, in fact, I do wish to be blunt here, we have been sold a lie that we think sexual freedom is freedom. The kind of sexual freedom that has been pushed since the 1960s actually isn't freedom because it chains us up to be victims of our own desire or the victims of other people's desires. Whereas what Jesus offers us is freedom to be who we were created to be within the perfect will of God. So when Jesus takes the law, he applies it deep into the human heart. It's not just the end result, but he pulls it right back up to the spring. See, according to Jesus, adultery doesn't start in the bedroom but it starts when we look at another human being with lust in our hearts. Now, how we do that really doesn't matter. Maybe that you're tempted to do that by setting up an unnecessary meeting at work with somebody you find attractive. Maybe that it does happen on a phone or on a computer. It may even happen in church. Don't think we're immune from it here. Or it may be on a film. How it happens is largely irrelevant. But it's whenever we allow ourselves to start indulging in the thinking of the what-ifs, What would it be like? And we can't stop what is happening next. You know, we can't stop temptation. Jesus was tempted. We've already heard that this morning. But what happens next, we can do something about. This has been quoted to all kinds of people, including Martin Luther, but his name carries a bit of weight, so I quite like this. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, 
but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Good luck if they were trying to build one in mine. (laughs) See, Jesus is not calling us to a life of no desire, but a life of rightly channeled desire. And he offers us what is a very chilling application. If your right eye causes you to sin, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. Oregon, one of the great thinkers of the early church, read this passage and was struggling with lust. And so he took it literally and performed on himself a a very serious operation. I won't tell you what it was. You can probably um, let your imagination work out what it was. Thankfully, at the Council of Nicaea in 321, that kind of activity was banned. Because it was said, that actually isn't what Jesus is talking about. This is not literal. Don't go around gouging body parts out to stop yourself from sinning. So what I would argue is that Jesus isn't being literal, but figurative and metaphorical with a literal application. You all understand what that means, don't you? I'll explain it a little bit. Basically, if there is something in your life that is causing you to sin, or causing you to go down the wrong river, if you like, far better to deal with it while it's still in its early stages, while it's still up near the spring, than it is to allow it to just keep going and going, and then you're dealing with a load of really complicated mess later on. So if you're finding that your phone is causing you to sin, chuck it away. Buy a phone that just has buttons and no screen on it, if that's what you need to do. If you find that actually it's your job that is putting you into a load of temptation, change jobs. Far easier to do that than to be picking up the mess from sin later on down the line. If you find that actually it's going into a particular shop where a shop assistant works who you find particularly attractive, shop somewhere else. You know, it's not rocket science, some of this. But do those kind of things that actually remove you from the situation. Block the source of the river. Don't let the river pull you downstream. We can read this again and think, actually, Jesus, you know, this is impossible. This is really tough. How can we live like this? Back to what Paul says in Romans. By the renewing of our minds. By the transforming work of the Holy Spirit who will change us into the likeness of Jesus. But when we let him. He won't barge his way in. He won't do it if we don't want him to. But by living a life that is lived close to Jesus. And yes, there is complete forgiveness and restoration if and when we mess up. But you know, it's far better to avoid sin, isn't it, in the first place, than to deal with the consequences later. Far better to deal with a little stream that's trickling than it is to try and manage a river that is in full flow. Are you walking in this today? Or are there things actually you need to do business with God about? Your holiness, while it is fun, is a tough call. Jesus never said, follow me and everything will be easy. But he said, follow me and you will be free. You will have a life that is full of joy and hope and you will have life to the full. It may be that today actually what you need to do is have a really honest conversation with yourself and then with the Lord and have that conversation together. Again, we don't do this to be saved. We are saved by the cross and the work of Jesus so we can live a life that is full of freedom and hope. And so we come to the last of the three titles that Jesus would have us look at. As if adultery wasn't hard enough, 
we now get to look at something that touches us really at the most painful level of human existence, the subject of divorce. You know, I know there are many of you here today who've been through the pain of a divorce, either personally or you've been through it as we have with with friends or members of a family. And John Stott simply says this about divorce. He says, there is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage and almost no tragedy so great as a degeneration for what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord and despair. And so from my point, it's with a great deal of fear that I even tread into this passage. But actually, we need to grapple with what Jesus says. We can't just ignore it and skip over to the next bit. A bit of context, actually, I think helps us with this passage. Again, this is a patriarchal society that Jesus is speaking to. Men are in the driving seat within a marriage relationship. In Jesus' day, if a woman were to be on her own, if, if she were to be divorced, she would really struggle to live. There weren't employment opportunities for women in the way there were for men. And it was, it was really, really tough to be a single woman or even a divorced woman. If a couple divorced and the woman was sent away and she didn't marry, then life would just be impossible. I think it's important that we remember that. But what also was happening was that Jewish men were divorcing their wives for all kinds of reasons. And there were some of these that have actually been recorded. So there were, there were cases of men saying to their wives, I want to divorce you because you have burnt my tea. There were others saying, I want to divorce you because you don't look now like you did on our wedding day. There were others saying, I want to divorce you because you're a rubbish cook. You see how two of them were about the men's stomach. There's a theme there. Now, Jesus then applies the law differently. Jewish men had been allowed to divorce, and what they were doing was was doing, um, they were having divorces for all these kinds of reasons. But Jesus says, with the exception of marital unfaithfulness, if you divorce a woman in this way, actually what you're doing is making the woman the victim. You are sending her away, and she becomes a victim. And some commentators on this passage will actually argue, to the culture of Jesus' day, this is what they would have read as the main point of this passage. That actually, men, stop turning your wives, if you're divorcing them, into adulteresses and victims. But what does it say to us today? Because that's not our culture. Our culture is very different. This is incredibly complex. There have been all kinds of different things said about this passage. Some that I think is very damaging. Some that I think can be quite helpful. What I'm just going to offer you is where I'm up to at the moment on this. So you can take it if it's helpful, um, or leave it and go and read somebody who probably has better things to say than I will this morning. That's just a reminder. Sorry, I should have put that up before. That we're saved by grace. First thing I want to say from this passage is that God's heart is for strong marriages. If you are married today, the marriage that you already have is God's gift to you. Make it strong if you have the power to do that. Spend time together. Talk to one another. If you are experiencing problems in a marriage, don't do that alone. Seek help. You know, come and chat to one of us on the leadership team. We can put you in touch with people who can help with those kind of situations. God calls all of us, whether we're single today, whether we're married today, 
to support marriage. You know, I don't believe that actually in God's ultimate plan for people, that divorce is part of it. The Lord calls us first to be people of reconciliation, of renewal, to work at marriage. Divorce is incredibly painful. Sometimes I've heard of people doing things like having a divorce party when they've got divorced. You're celebrating, you open the champagne, have a party when a divorce has taken place. I'm not talking about the same as relief from somebody who's come out of an abusive marriage, but, you know, celebration. And actually, to me, that seems to be something that would really break the heart of God. Third thing is we live in a broken world. Some relationships do break down. That is the reality of life of people like me and like you who have fallen and broken. Sometimes relationships break down through unfaithfulness. Sometimes they break down through abuse. Sometimes they break down through irreconcilable differences in living. Any and every divorce is painful. Painful to us as human beings and painful to God. But as we started with, God in Christ offers us full forgiveness. Yeah, there are people who have read this passage over the years and sort of made it into law and tried to beat people over the head with it. But actually, everything is forgivable. Everything. The only thing that the Bible says isn't forgivable is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go into what that means today. We'll perhaps talk about that another day. But everything else is forgivable. If you have been in a relationship today that has failed, that has fallen apart, that is forgivable. Jesus welcomes you. He opens his arms out to you, as he does with every issue. It's true that Jesus in this passage sets the bar very high for marriage. But if today you have felt condemned through past things that have gone wrong, and you have turned to Jesus, then Jesus' restoration is total, complete, and there is absolutely no condemnation. Do we hear that this morning? There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so what can we say about remarriage? Well, personally, I believe that if we believe in the complete forgiveness of the cross, which acknowledges all our humanness, all our brokenness, all our failure, that Jesus dealt with it there as he hung on Calvary for us. And if approached not with pride, but with great humility, then I believe God can and does bless second marriages. And I know there are people here who will testify to the amazing work that God has done in giving that fresh start, in giving that renewed chance. God is a God of restoration and renewal, isn't he? God is not the God who comes and beats us up and says, you have failed, therefore that is it. But he's the God who comes and offers each of us no matter what area we're struggling with, total and complete forgiveness. This is a tough passage. Very difficult stuff. So where do we leave it? I'm conscious that I've probably gone over time already. Three things to remember. This is not laws to keep, but a life to be lived. This is not our rule book to go around and tick off, are we doing this, 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 and this. But this is relationship with Jesus who calls us to follow him and grants us access to the throne room of God himself. This is what life lived with Jesus looks like. Remember, this is not how we reach God, but having led into, being led into the presence of God by Jesus, the Son of God, this is how he then calls us to go back and live our lives. 
And thirdly, remember that in any of these areas, God is the God of forgiveness. God is the God of restoration. And God is the God who says there is no condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. In summary, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And so just as we we draw to a close this morning, I'm going to read a passage from Jeremiah. And Simon's just going to play um, our closing hymn just very quietly underneath it. And it's a passage about being at the potter's house and about God moulding us to be more and more like him. So just listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 18. And there's a verse there from Isaiah 64, verse 8, that also takes the same thing. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. I'm going to read those last two verses again. I'm going to leave a blank where it says Israel. And if you would, can you put your own name in there and ask the Lord to do that moulding of your life this morning? Perhaps just want to close your eyes as I read this again. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand. Isaiah 64, verse 8. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand.